From the crossroads of America in the Hoosier state of Indiana, this is Get In, the podcast focused on the unfolding stories and extraordinary innovations happening right now in the heartland. I'm Matt Hunkler, CEO at Powder Keg, and I will be one of your hosts for today's conversation. I am joined in studio by co-host Christopher Tof Day, CEO of Elevate Ventures. And to my I've got Nate Spangle, head of community at Powder Keg. Let's go. Today's guest is Santiago Jaramillo, serial tech founder and CEO, and is now an executive coach. Very excited to talk to him on the show today. Psychological safety is, is trust that's earned. And so it's it's a thing that, that we earn as leaders. And so it's how do we react when someone tells us news that we don't want to hear? Santiago is a serial entrepreneur turned executive coach. He's a first generation immigrant from Colombia, Inc. Magazine 30 Under 30, three successful exits as a founder and CEO, all scaled within the powder keg community. He's a best-selling author of Agile Engagement and has created more than $100 million in total enterprise value. And he did that all by the age of 33. He also happens to be a really good friend of mine and I'm super excited to have him on the show today. Santi, thanks for being here, man. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, welcome back to the great state of Indiana. I know you've, you've you. had a nice a nice time. What? T- tell us a little bit about where you've been the last couple of months. Oh yeah, being from Columbia and growing up in South Florida, middle school, high school, my blood vessels are made for, for warm climbs. And yeah, the fam and I have been heading down to Florida for, for the season. So we are, yeah, snowbirding it up. So we got back here two times. So after leaves fall and spring blooms, that's when Indiana is home. You're doing it right, man. I missed it a lot though. I miss the people and miss so much of it. It's good. So good to be back. Where are you hanging out in Florida? Fort Lauderdale, yep. South Florida area. How'd you pick that? Yeah. Parents live down there and then I spent middle school, high school down there. So just enough connections yep. and, and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Less, less party than Miami too. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of your childhood, you have been an entrepreneur since the earliest ages. Can you tell us a little bit about your earliest entrepreneurial ventures? I think it involves produce and some pretty innovative ways of making a dollar. Yeah, always been a really entrepreneurial. I think it was seven when I started the first one and all the little kid lemonade stand businesses. And that's what it was. It was uh, avocados. It was uh, all the other kids at the country club with my parents were playing in the pool and doing normal children activities. And uh, for some reason I was hustling avocados to my parents' friends. And these were like highly overpriced Whole Foods avocados too. I was marking them up. I think they just bought it because they they thought it was cute at the time. But yeah, so got my first sales chops that way and then delivered some water for my neighborhood as well. And so had a technically I had an exclusive distribution agreement with the Coca-Cola truck <laughs> where only I could sell bottled water to our community. And that was that was really great. Uh, so I cut my teeth with produce, as you call it. And that's hilarious. I was basically the OG Colombian Kroger. And yeah, and then they, they evolved to cutting grass and making websites in, in high school and uh, teaching kids music and then running music summer camps and then it was really exact target where I in, as an intern in college where I started to get to know that there was a tech world out there and could actually combine the idea of entrepreneurship which for me was just seeing an opportunity in the world and I just compulsively needed to fill it I was like oh there's a problem there's a need there's a better solution here and, and this is fun it was like my it was a it was, Part of my art, I think, is seeing sort of opportunity and then coalescing some sort of solution that works better than the original thing. It has that feeling of ex nihilo, like something from nothing, like creation from nothing, which I really enjoy. You get that from something and then if nothing, and then you have this living, breathing thing called a company that has a personality and a culture and 
goes on after you have departed and it's a very kind of beautiful thing to birth something like that into the world in a way so yeah yeah when were you making websites What's that? When did you start making websites? That was high school. Yeah. Year-ish. They were not very successful. They were <laughs> like, I think it's I was 16 good. or 17, which, yeah. yeah. In 2016 or 17? Yeah, yeah. I got a little bit of it. I went to a summer camp where they taught you how to build websites. And then I started making some websites. And then that ended up being part of the Bluebridge project because I had ran a tiny little custom website agency. But then I saw mobile and I saw the stats that... Yeah. Everybody had it. This was 2007 iPhone launch, 2008 or nine app store launched or something like that. I think those are the rough dates. And so by 2011, we were spending more time on our phones than the computer. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. Like the computer changed every- the move from print to computer changed everything. The move from laptop, desktop to phone is going to change everything. And I saw that most of the time on the phone was being spent in native mobile apps, not the mobile web. And so it was like, there's something in mobile apps. I don't know what it is, but there's just a a wave coming and I want to ride that wave without knowing what it was. The first business plan was QR codes, SMS marketing, and mobile apps. And it was like way too soon for QR codes. Those just became cool. Like it was way too early of an idea. It was the right idea. SMS, like nobody was doing back then either. Um, And mobile apps were the ones that I just got a few bites on in college, but nobody actually bought until the visit Kokomo, the Kokomo Visitor Bureau. It was 2012. The Super Bowl was coming. Kokomo wanted some sort of visitor resource because people, I guess, were staying as far as Kokomo for the Super Bowl. And that's wild. Isn't that crazy? I yeah. remember that people were all over yeah. the state for the Super Bowl. So they wanted yeah. an iOS and Android app, and I did a custom development project, lost a ton of money because I didn't know how to scope and <laughs> went over budget and everything. <laughs> and I was like, custom development sucks. <laughs> no, it doesn't suck, but it's a hard business to be in. And, and or I wasn't good at it or both. And so <laughs> then I was like, wait, if Visit Kokomo wants an app, like, there's got to be thousands of other tourism destinations that are going to get an app. They're right now they're spending money physical visitor bureaus to hand out print brochures. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. surely it makes sense to spend 10, 20 grand a year on like a on a TripAdvisor competitor that's native to them and so that was that was Bluebridge. Before we dive deep into yeah. Bluebridge. Yeah. I want to learn you grew up in Colombia. Yeah, How yeah. did you land in the States? Oh, sure. Airplane. Um, <laughs> no. There it is. Yes. Parents are fully Colombian, been there for generations. And one particular Sunday, pretty much everybody in Colombia is Catholic. So we used to go to mass, you know, it was mass in the country called Brazil Avocados every Sunday. And I was building a tree house with my dad. I'd just seen Swiss Family Robinson or whatever. And I was like, live on the land, like <laughs> wild, have a tree house. So my dad, we're building it, we had got palm fronds for the roof. This is a legit tree house, right? And they, you got to get them on the roof while they're green or else they'll crack and stuff. And the way that waterproofs it is they got to dry in place. We got the palm fronds. They were drying. I was like, hey, dad, can we skip mass today? And he was like, go ask mom. And so I did. And mom is in a great mood, approves it. So we're skipping mass, building this tree house, the Church was right across the street, like diagonally across the street from us. We were building a treehouse. We hear gunshots pretty close by. My my dad's pretty concerned. I don't know the difference between a gunshot and a car backfiring. So I'm like, what's going on? We look across the street. There's two big military kind of camouflage trucks outside the church. And they're hurting. There's these sort of armed and camouflage clothing. Look like the army hurting people from the church into these two trucks. And then my dad saw one of them shoot with their semi-automatic gun or whatever into the air to get people moving. And he was like, this is not the army because they can't 
be doing that. It's not safe. So he called the anti-guerrilla, kind of anti-terrorist police, and they did not believe him. But ultimately, what ended up happening is a guerrilla group called the ELN came into the church, told everyone that they were the army. There was a bomb in the building that everyone needed to evacuate and kidnapped like over 120 people, including children. Most of the children were let go that day. They were put into these two trucks, trucked outside of the city and basically start walking into the jungle basically and uh, yeah the elderly and children were like most of them let go had friends from school and church family and stuff and most of the adults were gone for over a year just for ransom so people had to sell cars and houses and you could imagine as a kid not knowing if both of your parents are alive and your, your uncles are taking care of you so it was a really crazy time obviously we were very fortunate to not have it's one of those times where you know if I had turned left or if I had turned right or if I hadn't met this person my life would be different so it was one of those turning moments where that treehouse or not going to church or whatever saved from a lot more therapy (laughs) later on (laughs) it was not an easy situation but I remember to breathe I like literally that's insane hard to imagine yeah for sure how do you think that impacted you and your own leadership and career development yeah lots of ways I think one of the things that it taught me, I think, a lesson about money and the importance, the importance or lack of importance in a lot of ways. But I saw that having money is a way to get your loved ones back if they're kidnapped. And so getting a bunch of money was helpful because I might need that in the future in whatever children logic this is, if that makes sense. And so I think part of the entrepreneurship was actually just being like, I never want to be in a place where if my family needs me to rescue them that I can't do it and accumulating resources to keep me and my loved ones safe is important probably to an uh, that probably got taught to a to an unhealthy degree and I think part of the last part of growing up is finding choice and healing and balance and these types of things so I think a relationship with money is probably one of them and then just a general like feeling not safe in the world. Like the world isn't, you can have, I've had to transcend this belief that like the world is chaotic and not evil, but like dangerous and any safety is derived from controlling one's environment and, and that there isn't like a goodness that's out there. It's mostly just entropy and you just got to carve out a place of safety because, and the universe is going to take it away from you actively. And that's a very different fundamental belief about the nature of the universe (laughs) and the world than other worldviews. And there, there comes that came with a gift of a ton of like self-reliance and resourcefulness and an ambition and hard work and deep responsibility and initiative and strength and doing hard things. And it also is that belief is also limiting in a way, because I think there is good that comes to me that isn't created by me. <laughs> um, How old were you when this happened? And then when did you come to the States after that? I was nine. This was 1999, May 31st. It was the largest mass kidnapping in Colombian history. And then we, it took us a year to get the various immigration papers to get a work visa for my dad to and mom to start a new location for their business or whatever. So we had a temporary work visa. When we came in the year 2000, so I've been here 23 years this summer and 10 in Colombia. All right, so this is going to get way out there for a quick second. But so I don't think I've, like, man, so many emotions are going through me. That's just one of the most amazing, powerful things to even wrap my brain around, that a friend went through that, and I I didn't even know that. It's insane. How do you reconcile or think about present-day societies, and then you experienced that at nine years old, 
are there any thoughts that go through your mind on how things that society could do to just love one another, just be more understanding, embrace one another more, even when people might have different opinions, thoughts about things? Like, what, what, how do you think it, you probably, does that make sense what I'm asking? I think part a different of different vantage point. Than part, of that's, part of what comes to mind is exactly what you mentioned, which is like realizing <coughs> that all of us have stories like mine. They might not be as like maybe dramatic or crazy sound. That but it's get, all relative. But, but exactly, exactly. But it's all relative. I don't think a kid differentiates between a mass kidnapping in Colombia and getting bullied at school or whatever. Like right. it, it feels mm-hmm. awful and it traumatizes you, that kind of a thing. And all of us are like just doing our best walking around with like our beautiful parts of ourselves and also the parts, our defense mechanisms and our childhood adaptive selves that were patterns that we developed to keep ourselves loved and safe when we were kids and are now like compulsive and becoming like the ways that we're limited in our growth and our potential. And so everybody has that stuff. And when we're able to like tread carefully and softly with people, because we know that everyone has had pain and suffering in their life and any parts of them that we're experiencing that are not very pleasant are likely it doesn't excuse their behavior but it's coming probably from a place of unhealed pain and hurt and yeah that doesn't excuse everything but we start with at least like an opening of of empathy and of realizing that everybody has their story and we don't know what happened somebody's earlier in the day. So maybe treading kindly and carefully is a better path than, yeah. I don't know, bulldozing ahead. That's I, what comes to mind. I don't, but I don't have any societal advice. <laughs> <laughs> I think your story is a great illustration because that so many of the great leaders in the business world, in government, in arts and music, you name it, a lot of times their superpower is coming from a place of some sort of initial trauma. When I say superpower, those things that you named, resilience, resourcefulness, creativity, and every yin has its yang, which is the dark side, of which is feeling unsafe in the world or not necessarily feeling, maybe feeling like you have to take care of everyone in your family. Yeah. Even if that's not actually the case. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think so many leaders, certainly I feel like there are more and more leaders today that are going on that journey of introspection and learning that and getting to that next level of leadership. But one of the things I'm excited about what you're doing right now is that exactly working with other leaders who have had their own traumas, both as children, probably in their business too. If they're growing any kind of business that's growing at all, there's going to be traumas and understanding how to navigate through that. So I'm excited to talk more about that. And it's just, it's great to hear your own story. And I'm sure throughout the rest of this conversation, we'll hear more of that same pattern and yeah. things that you've learned along the way. Absolutely. I would love to dive into Bluebridge and, and ultimately Amplify a little bit more just because you built this, initially this Visitors Bureau app company, yeah. very young age. Talk to me about how old you were. I, Cause I remember when you came to the first powder keg event, like you were still in college. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you came in, came from Indiana Wesleyan. Yeah. It was Hackers and Founders. It was Binkley's and uh, Mark Hill was speaking and I drove an hour and a half down from Marion, Indiana to come do that. And I was like, I didn't know there were other people, crazy people like me doing this. <laughs> and how'd you hear about it? Hard it, thing that how, was likely to fail. <laughs> right. How'd you hear about that first one? I have no idea. I have no clue. Sorry. Yeah. Great marketing. Great marketing from whoever was running. It was yeah. just Matt's magic. Yeah, exactly. Serendipity. The, the way people found out about that in the early days is there was this new thing called Twitter and this yep. relatively early platform called YouTube. 
And I was sitting in the corner with Heard a of flip cam, yeah. yeah, taking a video of the Mark. I remember that. Mark, yeah. that you can find that Mark Hill video on That's YouTube still. still today. Yeah. That's awesome. And I was just sitting there, no tripod, just like elbow yeah. on my knee, <laughs> taking yep. a video. And that's how people were finding out about it. Is that yep. I would put it on YouTube, tweet out the link, and people would be like, where is this? How do I find <laughs> yeah. this yeah. thing? And I remember you saying that you drove an hour and a half down to be there. I'm like, this kid's going to be okay. Yeah, it's gonna, <laughs> yep. yes. yeah that's uh, hustle, man. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's amazing to think back on that. So 21, probably 21 yeah, years old. 21 years old. I was a junior, junior in college. And then um, junior summer, I tr- tried to sell mobile apps for three months. Sold nothing. I just <laughs> ugh, the amount when you think about spending 300 hours trying to three months and you just sell nothing. So I went back to school being like, oh, shoot, I thought I was going to be like an entrepreneur. And but I just straight up failed and mm. I didn't get a single customer the whole summer. And I was like, oh, I think I just need to get a job and take my dad's advice, which was like, get a job, learn on somebody else's dime and then get a network and then go out and go do that, which is good advice and well-meaning by dad for sure. But <laughs> didn't end up doing that. But yeah, then early then November after I had gone back to school, the city of Kokomo calls me and I stepped into my office, which was my college closet, <laughs> dorm closet, <laughs> and closed the deal. And it was a $13,500, $100 one time for an Android, iOS and Android app again, lost money. But then I was like, okay, there's a way to list build the hundred of these in Indiana and around the world. And then we got as any early stage founder is privy to make this mistake is not being focused enough. And so I was like, if we can do apps for visitor bureaus, we can do apps for other types of organizations too. Let's do a five-sided go-to-market strategy with five different markets. And so we try to almost become like the WordPress for apps for all sorts of different mobile applications. And so we got like a a church arm as well. We became the second largest church app platform in the world. So we do mega churches want iOS and Android apps for their congregation. We did some for university rec departments. We did for Indy 11 app for a little bit for sports teams, but we were just all over the place. We had a marketing team of three and I'm like, you have five ICPs. And so it ultimately, we, we got it to you know, raise venture capital. I learned how to be a CEO, right? To go from maker to manager to leader is a huge transition. And what got you here won't get you there kind of realizations. I learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, but ultimately just our hypothesis of we can have one platform that can create any kind of mobile app was not nearly focused enough. And we'd ended up with very, at first we could do lowest common denominator functionality for all four and it worked. And then we ran out of lowest combination denominator functionality and churches needed payment technology to accept giving and tourism needed Bluetooth beacon functionality, just totally different roadmaps. And so we realized we're really running three little businesses. None of them is, I didn't want to be just a church app platform. Tourism was like too small just for mobile apps. We'd have to go into CRM and other kind of verticalize. So anyway, ultimately decided that we were going to sell off the two business units, the church one and the tourism one, and so that we could focus on employee engagement apps for employers. Because my board really wanted me to go up market, just go up market, and I was like, there is no up market in churches. Like we're already, <laughs> right. we already have Traders Point or whatever. There's no bigger than this, yeah. and we couldn't really go up market in tourism. We had visit South Africa and visit New Jersey. We had states and countries as clients. So they're tourism bureaus, so. I was like, if we're going to go up market, we got to go corporate and we got to go for profit versus these small nonprofit clients. And so we basically, it was a bold move because we stopped selling those church and tourism. And so our growth peaked. And in six months, our growth 
was going to start tanking because, you know, you've got attrition and you're not building new ones. And so I had three months to sell these two businesses before they looked like crap and we couldn't sell them. And I had never sold a business before. And I was also trying to get a third one off the new one off the ground. Um, and so that was a really insane time where I just did not find balance. And it was very stressed because of the weight of responsibility. But I, I got the darn thing sold. We got eight million bucks for the tourism and church units. They each only have one million ish or so of ARR and we sold no brand, no employees, just the customer contracts and a copy of the technology. Yeah. And so it was really great. No investment awesome. banking help, just did it myself. And those were two separate transactions, very spread out from each other. They were totally separate transactions that closed within a day of each other with two different <laughs> buyers. So it was just really crazy, but I learned an incredible amount. But I also frankly started failing as a CEO because I was just super focused on selling these things. And I just had no patience for anyone. I was like, I'm working 90 hours a week. You're not doing your, I don't want to hear about right. it. Just freaking go do your job your and job. just get, get out of my face. And you have enough of those interactions and people start leaving. And I feel like, uh, especially when you're focusing to an employee engagement app yeah. uh, <laughs> and I'm like being a really cranky, stressed out, yeah. tired, impatient leader. And yeah, that was tough. Very human. Yeah. Very human. I was doing my best, but it was not what my team needed from an employee engagement CEO at the time. We all hear about lack of focus as one of these biggest detriments to entrepreneurial success, leadership success, even success in your own career. As you work with leaders today in your coaching practice and when you reflect on your own career, what are some of the things that are helpful for learning how to focus? Are there certain techniques or tricks that have worked for you or any of your clients and what, I guess too, what helps finally like things click? Yeah, I think it's two things come to mind. I think one, one is I had the assumption that yeah, we can find a sales rep that can just sell to visitor bureaus and to churches. Cause like I understood how our Lego functionality work. And I was like, this event calendar is the same for a sports team than it is for a church than it is for a tourism bureau. But I assumed that everyone was like me. And I'm not saying that I'm better or smarter than everybody. It was just, everyone's not Everyone a founder. Everyone else is spending 90 hours a week yeah, understanding it, the opportunity and how big the platform is. And has three years of experience with for the product capability and what it can do and all these things that are just unreasonable expectation to to expect of others. And I, I knew the four different ICP markets, but it's unreasonable to expect a three-person marketing team to go after five different ICPs. I, maybe I thought I could, but I this is not a good strategy for a team. I think that's one of them. The two things is, I think it's also realizing that what got us here, meaning a place where we have a thing that we're going to now not focus and distract ourselves with, is seeing opportunity, yeah. is seeing good ideas. And we see yeah. them everywhere and we are very gifted at it and we're usually right about them. What we And so it's a classic, what got you here won't get you there. And what great operators do isn't just perpetually hunt for the next shiny object and new idea, but they know how to just like Peter Thiel, just monopolize the crap out of a specific segment and be the market leader and saturate it and dominate it. And then in a very careful, programmatic testing way, expand to adjacent market and do that in a disciplined way. And to know what are the markers of success how do we know if we have achieved sufficient market product market fit with our core to extend ourselves from there and start to fight a two or three pronged war? It's like conquering Asia too early in risk. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? You just Absolutely. can't defend we all have that four different <laughs> yeah, you have like eight start. soldiers and you're defending eight <laughs> countries. What are you doing? You're bleeding army men. You're bleeding <laughs> army men. What are you doing? Yeah, I think it's remembering that not projecting ourselves onto our teams and onto others and that people really thrive with focus, can do incredible things with constraints. Number two, to realize that what got us here is seeing opportunities isn't what's going to get us there. That actually disciplined, focused execution is what's going to get us to success once we have some amount of product market fit in the idea. And then to have really clear success metrics of when will we be ready to expand? Is it a particular renewal rate? Is it a particular win rate? But if it's like, why would you hire more sales reps if your close rate is 2%? You just have a leaky funnel. Or why would you invest more into marketing when you can't close the deals? Or if you yeah. have 50% renewals, why double the size of your sales team to just right. create more revenue that's going to go out into a leaky funnel? It's just being really disciplined. And that operational discipline is a skill that is learned as an operator in a visionary and an innovator is has a very different mentality than a disciplined operator and so i think part of it requires self-awareness of can we grow those skills as visionaries and as entrepreneurs or do we need to hire for those skills and shed operational responsibilities to somebody else and i had co-founders that were more about focus and discipline and scarcity of resources that brought some of my optimistic mania (laughs) down into more of we can't actually achieve and succeed with these four things. And it takes creating a culture of psychological safety where people are willing to just be like, hey, I know that you want me to say, heck yeah, I'm going to go conquer those four hills. But somebody that can actually just be like, I don't think we can actually conquer those four hills. I think we can only do two. And I'm sorry, that's not what you want to hear. And I'm sorry, that's not what you told your board. And I'm sorry, that's not what revenue projections are after. But this is what's actually possible. And the candor and the trust and the psychological safety for to get real feedback from people that is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. How can leaders cultivate psychological safety on their teams so that they can get that pushback and can get that sort of supporting balance? Yeah. Oh, that's such a, that's such a narrow line that we walk between uh, encouraging our team to do the impossible and actually have that succeed and have inspire our team to actually go and be Sparta or something and try to take on mm-hmm. a, an army of 10,000 with 300 Tap or whatever. Into that deeper yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so that, that is just, that's just hard. I think just empathy wise is knowing like what is the edge of delusional <laughs> and visionary <laughs> and knowing where that line is. And I think it's tapping into our own gut intuition, the data and our team and psychological safety. But to answer your specific question, I think tr- psychological safety is trust that's earned. And so it's, it's a thing that, that we earn as leaders. And so it's, how do we react when someone tells us news that we don't want to hear but is true and is a helpful data point? I think how we react to that either encourages someone to be like, oh, this is somebody who values truth and a data point, or this is somebody who just, you know, just is only accepting of their view of the world and me sharing any limitation with them is going to not be received well. I think also. I think how we handle teammates disagreeing with us in our strategy, do we just squash dissent? (laughs) (laughs) Or we, and Jeff Bezos has this phrase called disagree and commit. And, And I think it's really helpful because a lot of people just commit without disagreeing. And then we don't get the data point. We don't get the objection. We don't get told that the three pronged go to market plan with one marketing person is crazy and not gonna succeed. 
But then it's also really not healthy when everyone's just disagreeing all the time yeah. and then people don't commit and then you're just rowing in three different places. And I, we got up to a place where, you know, we had some co-founder conflict and we had a disagreement and instead of like really working it out, we just each led two different cultures <laughs> and just let it happen. And that doesn't, it doesn't work. So it comes back to communication. Yeah. Really, I know that sounds absolutely a little bit cheesy and whatever, but no, no. Starting off with culture on day one, and it, it seems like when inevitably somebody's going to come to you and say, "Hey, Santi, I'm said this or did this and that and the other, and I'm upset." And then it's really easy to be like, either to not want to address it or to go talk to that other person yourself. But making it go back through that, have you talked to them yet, one on one, and said, "Hey, I, you said this is what I heard. Is that correct?" It seems like 90% of the time, people are like, oh, that's not what I said. Yeah. And they, they might have said that, but in their Great. brains, they didn't think they said that. Yeah. Great for your intimate relationships at home as well, yeah. by yes. the way. Yes. <laughs> Who knew that this skill that we're talking about that's like key to interpersonal relationships and like the first skill they teach you in marriage counseling right, and <laughs> right. therapy is like one of the most important things that we need to do no. as leaders. What I heard you it, say is this. That had nothing. Did I get that right? Yeah. That had nothing. What does that have to do with a mobile app platform for tourism and church bureaus? But that's <laughs> the horizontal thread of leadership and management is that we're all in the people business. Yeah. Ultimately, regardless of what our product is, regardless of what our industry is, we all, whatever, whoever, I guess there's some industries where chat GPT or whatever is doing all the work, <laughs> but so far it's still mostly humans. And You said it in um, your book. You said no matter what business, you are in the talent business. Yeah. that's Todd may have said that. I don't <laughs> recall who wrote what, but yes, it, that is thing, that's very good research, Matt. Quick break from our normal programming. I have Erica Schweier, COO from Elevate Ventures here in the studio today. Erica, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you're going to tell us a little bit about this Rally Innovation Conference that's coming up. Yep. So it's the largest cross-sector innovation conference in the world. We're going to feature six innovation studios. So think hard tech, software, sports tech, ag and food, healthcare, and entrepreneurship is going to kind of be our catch-all. I love that. So tell me what is... Who's it for? Yeah, it's for innovators, entrepreneurs, investors. Honestly, anybody probably listening to this podcast. It's going to be a multi-day thing that's happening in downtown Indianapolis. Yep. People coming in from all over the country and maybe even all over the world to be here. That's our hope. Yep. And the dates are actually August 29th through the 31st. Perfect. And if people want to find out more information about speakers, tickets, things like that, where can they go? Yeah. So they just go to rallyinnovation.com and sign up for communications. They can also get their tickets. I love it. You heard it here at rallyinnovation.com. We'll see you there. Research, Matt. I actually have another quote from your book, Agile Engagement, that I'd love to talk about. And you've already touched on it of like how these two cultures emerged with you and your co-founder kind of leading two different cultures within one company. Yeah. And the quote is, maybe this one is from you, a culture is bound to emerge. So you might as well make sure it's a great one. Yeah, absolutely. Being intentional. Yeah. With it. Yeah. How did you learn from that at Amplify after going down the path of two paths? Yeah. Ultimately, what were some of the lessons that you learned in transitioning that culture and starting to hone it and be more intentional about it? I think, I think at first I have this kind of right-handed way of very natural way of being that's natural to me of driving and charging and saying, we're going this way. And then I got some feedback that that wasn't working. So I almost got too passive. And so part of this was actually going toward that conflict more directly and calmly and not just letting the conflict continue to fester on and on. I think it was part of it, but I also totally lost the original question that you were asking. (laughs) I I think you're answering it, which how do you ultimately start to 
as you realized that there were two cultures emerging, mm-hmm. how did you start to be more intentional and how did you grow as a leader in creating a more intentional culture at Amplify? Yeah, yeah. okay. So at, during the same time, I think part of what we realized is that as we pivoted from Bluebridge to, to Amplify, essentially, it was like the same team and we needed a different culture, but we just, we had the same people. So it was just natural to perpetuate the existing momentum of the team. And so for us, it was really pausing a reset, like redoing core values, but not just as an exercise on a piece of paper, but like building it into how we hire for those specific core values, growth mindset being one of those values, communication, some sort of interpersonal health and communication being part of those core values, which is what some of the differences in the culture that kind of weren't working out. And it wasn't that I was like, wasn't that I was necessarily wrong or right. It was just that the team, it was unfair for mom and dad to be saying different things. We just needed to be on the same page. And him and I tried really hard to get on the same page and we just ultimately could not. And so it was having the courage to actually see that conflict all the way through, even if it meant one person exiting. And I was just frankly, really afraid of that happening for all the reasons. It looks bad. My board's going to be concerned. My investors are going to be concerned. I don't know. He's been there from the beginning. And so who's going to replace him? All the scary stuff that happens with transitioning. And I just, I knew that it needed to happen, but it was a really scary thing and it took a longer than it needed to be. So it festered yeah, we, for a while. Can we just do a PSA right now that, that, when you see stuff on LinkedIn and you see somebody switching companies, it doesn't mean that anything's wrong or bad or whatever, right? Things yeah. shift, things happen, opportunities mm-hmm. come up, et cetera. Passions sometimes shift, et cetera. I always get amused. I get all, what do you think happened to such and such? I'm like, why do you care? It's all good. Don't worry about it. Or call them up and talk to them. Don't start asking the whisper campaign. Yeah. Santi, how many jobs have you had at companies you didn't found? That you weren't the founder of? Two. Two? Internet Exact Target and 15.5 after I was a CEO. So you were an intern at Exact Target. Yep. And then you're founding this high growth tech company. Yeah. Where did you learn about company culture? What yeah. book did you read? What was the magic answer? <laughs> yeah, like School of Hard Knocks. You're just making a ton of... Yeah, I didn't. I had never really had a manager before I became a manager. And so it was just like voracious reading it was hiring great executives and being like oh you just you brought like notes to your one-on-one maybe i should do that now (laughs) or oh you just did the perform you just gave your team like proactive feedback every six months like maybe i like come up with the criteria for your job and then every once in a while tell you how you're doing instead of <laughs> well, I just I think I just picked it up I also I had Bill Godfrey on my board he's amazing. Um, Scott Dorsey for a bit Don Aquilano John True from Cultivation Capital just Ryan Ziegler from Medicine really great people that all kind of knew some of this and so between I think between voraciously reading and then I got a coach right? I think I, I got a coach when I realized that like my growth by absorption and osmosis and reading wasn't quite keeping up with how quickly I needed. It was really the shift to be an employee engagement company. It felt like I was like what I would imagine like a pastor at a church feels like everybody expects you to like be perfect, like living in a glass house. And that was the same thing with like employee engagement. Like we were literally a company based on culture. And so I had to be like a perfect leader all the time. How'd you find your coach? Employee engagement best practices. A friend, Scott Whitlock, recommended Chip Knighty here locally with Kairos Consulting. And we had a lunch and I had always valued self-awareness. Like I'd always taken different personality tests and all this kind of stuff, like all of them. But I, and he 
talked to me about the Enneagram and I was like, this sounds sketchy. Tell me more. <laughs> and I learned about it and I wasn't that interesting academically in the Enneagram then, but he described what an Enneagram eight was like. And he was, he self-identifies as an Enneagram eight. And I was like, oh, why do you know me so well? And it's not that he knew me that well. He just knew about my Enneagram eight archetype and could very quickly understand me at a really deep level that I didn't feel like a lot of people understood me in. And I also felt like he had, he's, he was farther ahead in his Enneagram eight maturity journey than I was. And so that, that kind of caught my eye. And, and I frankly also had gotten to a point where I had enough budget to hire a good coach. They're not super, they're not the most affordable. I mean, they're reasonable and great ROI, but from a, just, it's not a couple hundred bucks a month, kind of an investment. And so um, that's how I found the first one. The second one I found through reboot.io. I went on one of their events and Brad Feld and Jerry Colonna are involved with that organization. It was really great. So you just talked about like the ROI on an executive coach. Yeah. How do you measure the effectiveness of those dollars? Yeah, yeah. So the other day I coached like a co-founder conflict and helped them avoid like a protracted legal battle for the control of the startup. <laughs> that's that's value. In one session. So it's okay. Like, yeah. What's the ROI of that? Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Or About a million. <laughs> yeah. Or another client that knew that a product pivot was the right thing and was terrified of what his investors and board would think of it, especially because they raised like family and friends. And yeah. They knew in their heart of hearts of the product, but they just had all in it just for months. They had just been struggling, can't sleep at night, can't make a decision. And then I asked them one question of, they told me about this other time when they hadn't had friends and family and how easy was to make choices. And I was like, put yourself back in that time, in that scenario where you didn't have that pressure. What would the you back then have decided? And then that was like, oh, I would do the product pivot. And then obviously a bunch of objections came to mind and fears of what, what do I tell investors? And so you can make a plan for all those things, but it sounds like you have clarity. And he was like, yeah, I have clarity. Yeah, so and they invested in the founder. And they invested in the founder. Yeah. Exactly. And made the product pivot new products more successful than ever. And how do you gauge the ROI of that? Or somebody's having a bad day and they want to quit. And, and you help them get more grounded and, and you know, get a different perspective. And all of a sudden they don't quit. What's the ROI of eventually that startup sell successfully because they stuck through it. And I, my coach helped me with that, <laughs> my, yeah. especially my second coach. There were some dark moments there where I just wasn't sure if I, this was the healthiest place mentally for me to stay. But I also didn't want to leave the ship. What I felt was sinking in the middle of the ocean and just be like, I'm going to take care of my mental health. Good luck, <laughs> everyone, investors and shareholders and customers. I'm going to take care of me. And is that, that I think there are times when people need to decide to make that choice. Yeah. And I almost did, but my coach was able to patch me up enough to get back on the battlefield <laughs> to fight yeah. another day. Yeah. And then ultimately led Throw to some a duct tape on it and stick you back exactly. up there. Exactly. And it led to a good outcome. And what were some of the other benefits that you saw of getting an executive coach early on? Yeah. I think part of it is we have all these voices and conversations that we have with ourselves. And this provides a very safe place for a third party to hear that and just mirror back to us. And then it goes from feeling like this crazy swirl of ideas and self-confusion because we've thought about every angle five different ways. And then we get stuck in a loop in our own heads to like, oh, what I'm hearing is that you value this and this and this value that you value is not in place right now. Is that what I'm hearing? And it's, oh yeah, that is what I'm saying. And now they go from confusion to, I just got back mirrored clarity. And I didn't say anything new. I just mirrored back in a very succinct, clear way, what they said that really mattered. 
because I'm able to observe their face and their tone and their language. And so I'm able to see, oh, you really lit up when you said that, or you, you got really like down like when you said that, like that doesn't seem like it's working, right? So that would be, I think, one of the things. And then I also, again, forgot the question that originally. <laughs> what, I what think I think, more, I, real quick, I, I want to, if anybody's listening to this and you're a, if you're a founder, co-founder, whatever, because people, you don't understand what the experience is like unless you walked it, right? And so exec, getting a coach yeah. or finding a group. So there's, there's entrepreneurs organization out there. Yeah. There's also other- part of that group, weren't you? Yeah. And there's also, I still meet once a month with a group of CEOs today. Yeah. And yeah, uh, So do I. And been for what? I don't even know how long. 20 plus years probably. And uh, What's the benefit of having a peer group like that? Therapy. Yeah. You're not alone. You're not yeah. alone. And so it's easy for us to think, oh, I'm the only one. That feels this way. I'm the only one this is happening to. I'm the only, I'm the only, I'm the I I. There's no I in team, and uh, and so when you surround yourself with people who are experiencing those same things, the, the highs and the lows and in the medium, holy cow! It provides so much more headspace for some kind of balance. Yep. And it's just I think it's it's a prerequisite. It's almost like investors shouldn't invest in companies that the CEO or the co-founders don't have some outlet. Once yeah. a month. I think mirroring back is one thing. I think another question, questions that expand the sense of possibility that they have, they give them other options that they are yeah. not currently aware of. I think another one is the feeling of not alone. The other one is like access to curated resources. So I'm raising venture capital for the first time and they go on yeah. and they're searching like how to read. And so okay, just read venture yeah. deals right. and read how to raise money by Paul Graham and then read those two things and let's come back and you'll be like prepared to raise or whatever, or the Holloway guide to fundraising. So it's several things in once, but it becomes this. Then there's when you're having co-founder conflict or conflict with your spouse about how much you're working or whatever those things are. These are conversations that you can't really have anywhere else. And you're sure your therapist can, but then somebody who has both the combination of creating a safe space for listening and reflection, asking good questions, and also has business acumen and can empathize deeply and, but also help point of some of the way can be really useful. And in those conversations, what I've observed is when people share experiences, that's where the magic happens, right? Yeah. Instead of trying to give advice, advice yeah. you're, what do they call it, gestalt? Yep. It's like really, which is hard to do, right? Yeah. It's so hard. That's the coaching. That's the yeah. skill set of coaching. It's yeah. just, yeah. I'm going to go a little bit out of left field here because I, I know we're coming close to the end of our hour together. But there's one thing I wanted to ask you about because one of the things I've always admired about you, Santi, uh, beyond your servant leadership, open hearted leadership, and just willingness to be vulnerable in that situation of being an entrepreneur, being a CEO, is also sharing what you're learning along the journey. And from an outside perspective, it seems like the thought leadership that you had, speaking on stages around the world, contributing to Forbes and Inc., writing a published book published by Wiley, seemed to make a really big impact on your career and the success of Amplify. How would you summarize the value of thought leadership as a CEO or even just as an executive or leader? Yeah, it can be, I think one of the things that it did was it got the message of the mission that we were after out there. And then it really helped with recruiting because people were like, I want to be a part of that mission. I didn't do it for the recruiting side, but I think ultimately recruiting is maybe the most important thing that we do as CEOs, maybe other than don't run out of cash. (laughs) It's get the right people surrounding you. And so I think it helped tremendously to create a really great employer brand where people wanted to 
come work because they had trust in the message. They understood that they were wanted to be part of that mission and they had leadership that they felt some sort of connection. It's sometimes we feel connected to these people that we follow and we've never met them, but we just have heard of them enough where we start to trust them and that, that sort of thing. Um, speaking engagement, the book really unlocked speaking engagements. And th those were, if your target market goes to events, <laughs> they can be a really great go-to-market arm for sure. And for us at first it was CEOs. And so there were Vistage communities and other CEO communities that I spoke at. And we got, every time that I would speak, we got customers. It was hard to scale that type of thought leadership because it wasn't digital thought leadership. It was get on a plane and speak at a thing. And so when you're trying to grow 2x, you can't just do two times the amount of speaking <laughs> engagements every single year. And so actually that was one of the things that what got us here won't get us there. And we were, Adam and I were so good at speaking engagements, not scalable speaking engagements. And it brought in so much revenue that we almost didn't, it didn't allow our team to develop more scalable ways of mm -hmm. generated, generating demand gen, because we were, it was just double the close. Like when we had a 15% close rate on sales on leads that came in anywhere else. And we had 30% close rate on folks that heard Adam and I speak. Wow. And so it just, it just provides the brand air cover for I believe in this person. I trust them. I'm grateful because they've added value already with content. It's, it's inbound marketing, right? It's yeah. what's the value of gaining goodwill with the people early that are going to eventually make a buying decision. It's just, you have goodwill and they will are more likely to buy from you. What would you say to the humble Midwestern founder? That's I don't want to get on stage. I don't want to make this about me. It's about our team. Yeah. Write about whatever is authentic and interesting and, and valuable. If like getting on stage isn't it, then maybe writing on LinkedIn, it could be it. For me, my wife, Kate, did a lot of my LinkedIn ghostwriting. I'm like a talker and not a writer. And so I would just, I found someone who could understand my voice and could help me. Yeah, so speaking engagements, I was fine. But for anything written, I, I got really great writing help because that was going to be way easier than me trying to become a great writer, which is just not going to happen. That's great advice. Yeah. That's so really just advice. get the right partner to help you get your voice out there. And that person will ask you, even if you don't think you have something unique to share the amount of time that you think about your customer's problem is way more than what other people are thinking about so you do have things to share and but you need someone to help what is an obvious dumb statement that shouldn't be said and what is actually new and insightful and what is like too oversharey and kind of awkward and what's too canned and not and i feel like it's really hard to have that sense of ourselves yeah. of, of what is like a genius thought and what is just like a rote thought <laughs> like I, just, I don't night, know the you difference have, you have brilliant uh, ideas you wake up the next morning you're like that was dumb. what was that <laughs> so, you, you posted on linkedin you're like this is for sure going viral and like yeah. 12 people like it and you're like sheesh all right a good editor is more objective it can be like that was really good that was gold and like yeah. i would cut that and so i think having a team around you is helpful what i'm hearing though it really is table stakes if you want to be a leader or an executive to figure out some way to put your thoughts out there in a more scalable way than a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it may not be authentic to everybody and it may not be necessary. There might be people, maybe everyone, I guess, could be, your employees are online, so on an employer brand, it's gonna work every time. But yeah, on the go-to-market side, you may not have people that are on LinkedIn, so maybe it's not useful to be there. So I think it's, it goes back to good marketing, which is like knowing your audience and where are they at, and then be wherever they are be at. There. And people, right? Goes back to people wanted to work with you and Adam while you were on stage. You're like, oh, wow, yeah. they're captivating. I wanna work yep. with the, yes. not just brand, it's Santi, it's yeah. the people. Yeah, I think that's, you're touching on, yeah, it's, I think Tim Kopp, 
is just talking about this. It's, it's not B2B. It's not like B2C. It's just like business to human. Like people want to buy from humans. B2B. And yeah. uh, that's why all these videos are like shaky so and stuff. Cause it's like authenticity is important more than it is about produce Time edits produce. and stuff. Like people want the realness because we're surrounded yeah. by so much fakery. We just want the real. Can we're hungry us, for the real. Can you tell us about what you're doing today with real founders, real executives, real leaders around the world? and how people can engage with you and what you're doing? Oh, sure. Yes. So I'm coaching CEOs and founders and it's executive and leadership coaching. So I meet with my clients twice a month and I I get really good at understanding their goals and who they are and do a lot of intake. What are their childhood adaptive mechanisms and where are they is it holding them back and it's equal parts business therapy and also it's helping them understanding how are you doing in your life one to five how are you doing in your work life one to five and what would make it a five getting really clear on what it is they want getting really clear on what their vision is getting really clear on how that's communicated to their team making sure that one of the biggest things i see is founders sacrificing their health for. And so it's like the basics of, are you sleeping? (laughs) Are you working out? Are you having one-on-ones with your team? Um, And then just really reacting main fire that they're bringing. So that looks like, how do I fundraise or I have an underperforming employee? What do I do where I'm having issues with my co-founder or we've hit a new milestone and I need to reinvent my job and I need to go from manager to leader and I need to hire an executive team. Like, how do I not mess that up? So it's all of these really deep questions are like, Hey, I've lost my mojo. Like I used to love this and I'm not feeling it anymore. What changes am I done? Should I hire a CEO? Should I hire a CEO? Do I get out? Like these are questions that they've maybe never allowed themselves to ask and think about. And, but most of the time it ends up being, how can a founder be in their zone of genius? The zone of things that they are really great at that really gives them energy And how do they put more attention and more priority at finding capital and humans to help offload the areas that they're not zone of genius, the amount of damage that we cause by holding on to areas of the business that we shouldn't even beyond not having resources to to have that is is tremendous. And so that all begins with some self-awareness, some situational awareness, and then some courageous decisions and some really tapping into the deepest parts of ourselves to know how to proceed in the face of these really big questions that they're bringing. So for me, it's an honor to both help them perform and slay bigger dragons at work and also become more resilient, calm, grounded, peaceful, happier individuals. And that's what I really is. I get to work on their business and making it better. But ultimately I think the gift of great coaching that I got from it was not just becoming a better CEO and my ARR growing faster and sure it did that, but also gaining more self-awareness, becoming a better listener, understanding how to navigate conflict better, how to give another human constructive feedback in a way that they receive, understanding how I'm showing up in a way that's not working for other people. Like these are skills that my wife and my friends and my family like sees the evidence of. Because I think, I really think that one of the biggest secrets out there is that the path to leadership excellence is the same path as human development and human maturity. I don't think that we can actually become better leaders unless we become more whole healed humans. And I think pursuing leadership and pursuing maturity as humans is actually the same path. Um, and that's a beautiful, that's what I love is it has great ROI, <laughs> but it, but not just monetary ROI has yeah. this kind of human meaning fulfillment side of it for me. And that's the duality of that's what I'm really enjoying. 
I'm excited. I'm excited for you, man. And it's great to hear some of the stories you shared here on the show today. We're down to our final two minutes. And this is Nate's favorite part of the show. Yes, sir. This is the lightning round. All right. All right. So rapid fire. First thing that comes to your mind. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. Outside of the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what is Indiana known for? What is Indiana known for? Hospitality and kindness. Spoken of a true tourism executive. Yes. Yes. Okay. Ready? What is one hidden gem in Indiana? The White River. I think I like <laughs> kayaking but nor more north than here. But okay. yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with the White River real quick? Yeah. Yeah. I love the river. So I live on the White River up in like 75th and Keystone area. I put in a Keystone to the crossing and kayak and float down to my backyard, which I really love doing. Or you can boat or kayak from my house to Broad Ripple. There's like a dock in Broad Ripple and that's pretty sweet to boat to dinner. And yeah, it's like just a, I love, I do, there's something about water that's calming. There's something about flowing water that's really calming and it feels like you're like in Brown County with like really tall trees and water and there's all sorts of the bird songs are incredible because so many birds and wildlife. So it's this really hidden gem of unspoiled nature almost and in the heart of Indianapolis. Santi, we're neighbors. That's right in my neck of the woods. I'm on the little pergola that looks over the White River. So maybe I'll see you. Yeah, right there. there. Yep. As someone who's been to a hundred plus cities around the world, it is very unique that we can like be in the middle of our city and it feels like we're on a state park, like yeah. on a river in a state park. Yeah. It's so cool. For and sure. It's really cool to kayak by your house and be able to pull over and oh, <laughs> yeah. grab a beer on a Saturday afternoon. Oh, yeah. A little cabrew trip, gentlemen. Yeah, there we there go. There we go. Yep. All right. Final question of the lightning round. Who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone who is doing big things. No wrong answers. Yeah, I'll go with, go with like Chip Knighty. He does great work around leadership stuff. He's done really great work around the Anagram. I really think that the Anagram is like a deeper self-awareness tool than most stuff out there. People, some people can be really annoying about it. So if you can get past the people telling you your type and, you know, reducing you down to a number or whatever, <laughs> it's a really powerful tool. And he's doing really deep work around self-awareness with that in the workplace in a way that's different. So I think locally in terms of leadership, big fan. Great answer. Love that. Santi, thanks so much for coming here and sharing some of your journey. Super excited about this chapter for you, working Thank with, you. with clients, sharing your own experience, and thanks for sharing that here today. Of course. Thank you all for what you do for the entrepreneurial ecosystem. I have been a beneficiary of the infrastructure that you all have laid out from hackers and founders to Verge to Bowderkeg to, to Elevate. We received funding from Elevate at Amplify and through some sort of vehicle. Um, and so just thank you very much. You, your work makes it easier for everyone else throwing their boat. You're building the infrastructure that makes it easier for the for those in the arena right now. So keep up the great work and thanks for highlighting great stories. Thanks, man. Dawson, thanks, Santi. Thank you too. This has been Get In, a Powder Kick production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for a guest or a segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top-tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. 
Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for Startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.